0: Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont.
1: And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please
0: take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com.
1: And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraft
0: show. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Debbie Gibson. You may know Debbie for her late 1980s hit pop singles, Only in My Dreams, Shake Your Love, Out of the Blue, and the chart toppers Foolish Beat and Lost in Your Eyes. What you might not realize is that Debbie wrote all those hits completely solo while still a teenager at the age of 16 she became the youngest artist ever to have written produced and performed a number one single on the billboard charts she once shared the ascap songwriter of the year honor with bruce springsteen the same year she was nominated for best pop female vocalist by the american music awards and favorite female music performer by the people's choice awards now more than 35 years into her career debbie has sold over 16 million records worldwide and has released 10 studio albums Her most recent, The Body Remembers, was released last August and is her first U.S. studio album in 20 years to feature all original songs, including a new duet version of Lost in Your Eyes with Joey McIntyre of New Kids on the Block. Though she was named one of Billboard magazine's top 60 female artists of all time, Debbie has also found success in musical theater, starring in Les Miserables and Cabaret on Broadway, and in the London West End production of Grease, among more than a dozen other productions. Never a pre-packaged pop invention of record label executives, Debbie was a musical prodigy who has continued to make her mark as a singer, songwriter, producer, musician, actor, and entrepreneur. Part one. This episode of Songcraft is brought to you by the fine folks at Pearl Snap Studios. And
1: we've talked to you about them before, but Scott, I don't know if you knew this, but I actually was in Nashville this past week and I went by and I saw Justin. I visited Pearl Snap Studios. And I saw him, I saw all the elves at work with their little hammers out on their workstations. You know, they're just, they're, they're hammering away at demos because it's almost demo season. And, uh, but, you know, he played me actually some of the songs that he's been working on, some of his his own stuff and some of the stuff they've been doing there uh, at Pearl Snap. And man, it's good stuff. The, the quality is just always super high and uh, sends me back, makes me want to kind of step my own game up.
0: Yeah, Justin and his team definitely know what they're doing. Uh, if you've got a song that you would like to get recorded, um, go to PearlSnapStudios.com, and they've got a tab on the website that says Build My Demo. You can go and select your demo package. There's very upfront pricing. He tells you exactly uh, what it's going to cost you beforehand, so there's no surprises. The only surprise, actually, is that if you're a Songcraft listener and you tell them, you actually get a little bit of extra discount off of those advertised prices. But they tell you you know, what they offer. They've got a basic package that's like one instrument and a vocal. They've got a a simple package that's three instruments, a standard package that's five. You know, you decide what you need. And, you know, my big question would be, uh, do I get to pick the instruments? Like, if I got the three instrument package, could could I do contrabassoon and penny whistle and bagpipes? Like, would that be possible or or do they you know uh, that that's an important question i think we need to get out of the way but you know other than that it's super clear <laughs> cut and and uh, i love what they're what they're offering here
1: it well, sounds like a lot of it uh, sounds like a lot of control that you're trying to exert over the process i would just i would advise <laughs> you as a creator to just take your hands off it and let them do the right thing if it's supposed to be a contrabassoon that's cool but if it's an oboe don't freak out
0: That's good advice But definitely go to PearlSnapStudios.com Whether you want to record a single demo Of a song you've written Or whether or not you're ready to make an entire album As an artist-writer They can hook you up Once again, PearlSnapStudios.com Part 2 So we had some sad news over the weekend And uh, honestly,
1: some shocking news uh, That Taylor Hawkins The drummer of Foo Fighters Passed away just kind of out of the blue um, yeah. and if, if you're on social media at all, I'm sure you saw people talking about it. You know, um, I feel like half of my feet is, is musicians and friends that are musicians and, and all of us just were kind of just stunned and so saddened by it. I just, I just couldn't believe it.
0: Yeah. He's a guy that, um, just really seemed like super full of life Yeah. and somebody who embodied what's supposed to be. I think kind of the spirit of a rock band, which is just fun, you know, that when he played um, there was just kind of a a joy and it was like, he was like a real rock star, Yeah. but without all the like kind of pomp and arrogance of being a rock star, he was like the guy who's like, Oh my gosh, I became a rock star. How cool is this? And just loved playing. And, and, you know, it's, it's shocking when, um, you know somebody is suddenly gone that seems that vibrant
1: yeah and you know somebody uh, I saw somebody make the point he was also such a good drummer that he made you forget that Dave Grohl is a drummer right you know I mean those, those, Dave Grohl is one of the greatest drummers you know ever in, in rock and roll and Taylor filled that seat so so well um, with you know such energy such personality and and just was so great at it that you didn't even think like, oh, maybe it'd be better if Dave was back there on the drums. You just, you didn't think that. Um, And those two guys had such a connection. I actually just finished reading Dave Grohl's book, The Storyteller. Um, And there's a lot of, he spends a lot of time talking about just how he and Taylor are just basically just soulmates, just, you know, friends that were kind of meant to be together. And uh, I just, I can't imagine how crushed Dave is, you know, especially after losing a, a band member back in
0: Nirvana, and
1: and now just being in this spot again, it just it just hits hard.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's got to be absolutely devastating for a guy like that who who put so much, you know, into the creative process in Nirvana, and and lost Kurt Cobain, and then put so much in the creative process of Foo Fighters, and and loses Taylor. You know, um, yeah. for people who haven't. Experience that, and and look, I haven't really experienced it, so I barely know what I'm I'm talking about. But being in a in a band is like being part of a, a family. I mean, yeah. you you really live with these people. You share the joys of life. You you share the the low points. I mean. Um, you know, being in a band isn't like, oh, there's some folks who get up on stage every now and then and make some music. I mean, they share life together. So, um, yeah. yeah, just really sad for, for all the fans and especially for the guys in that band. It's, it's honestly,
1: it's hard to imagine what, what's next for Foo Fighters. Um, they had a lot of Look, I think they were scheduled on tour up until like, you know, the winter. <laughs> um, so there were yeah. a lot of dates, um, I don't know if you go in, and complete those dates i mean you saw zz top just go back out and and kind of just finish the tour after after dusty died um i don't know this feels different and yeah i'm not sure why but uh it i would kind of be surprised if they just you know plow ahead and continue but you know look, at the stones did it too i mean um and yeah. maybe there's a sense in which you feel like you're honoring a fallen band member by by continuing on i don't know i i'm I don't envy those decisions. I don't envy being in that spot of making those. Um, But I I tell you, man, I've I've been listening to Foo Fighters, you know, for the last few days, just like, just really appreciating, you know, their music and appreciating that drumming. I mean, Taylor was, he's a heck of a drummer.
0: Yeah, uh, and I was recently watching this HBO documentary about Alanis Morissette, and did not realize that Taylor Hawkins was Alanis Morissette's drummer during yeah. the time that uh, she was just huge uh, with that first big album that came out in the '90s, and he was part of her touring band. Yeah. And uh, you know that that band was super important to the whole Alanis phenomenon, and uh, it was interesting to to hear him kind of telling stories about those days and, you know, just watching him in interviews, just a super, uh, likable guy. Um, and you know, just a super sad situation. There's, there's no way to transition out of talking about that (laughs) without some kind of awkwardness. But, um, (laughs) you know, thinking about like Alanis and thinking about Debbie Gibson, Mm. uh, those are two artists that probably would not typically be mentioned uh, in the same breath. And um, probably because, you know, they were both young female artists. Debbie obviously emerged in the 80s, Alanis in the 90s. But Alanis changed the landscape in a lot of ways. It was a very edgy um, kind of confessional, open diary kind of songwriting. And Debbie Gibson was very much a mainstream pop you know, inspired by Madonna, that kind of thing. Very different worlds musically. Yeah. But um, I think sometimes people have a tendency to assume that all pop music is some kind of calculated, prepackaged, you know, corporate thing, uh, particularly when you're talking about like teen pop stars right. and Alanis definitely blew that perception away, um, you know, that here's a young woman who's definitely a rock, you know, a pop rock artist, but if you think about what Debbie Gibson was doing, she was writing those songs solo, which I don't think that I can overstate how impressive it is that a teenager wrote five top five pop singles as, you know, basically just this kid out of nowhere who taught herself how to do this in her bedroom. And, you know, it's just crazy. If you've listened to Songcraft, even more than one episode, you should be aware of the
1: fact that it's really hard to write one hit song, like in the course of your life and career, one hit song. And then to think that Debbie wrote like a half dozen while she was still sixteen, seventeen years old. <laughs> right. I, I mean, yeah. we we've, we've been sitting here talking to you know Hall of Fame writers, many of whom don't don't crack into the top five more than once or twice. And and right. she was sitting there making a habit of it and writing these songs, like you say, yeah. by herself um, and producing them. What in the world? Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't... The only thing that I can point to to say why we all didn't know about this at the time is because it wasn't... For whatever reason, it didn't seem important to let the public know. For whatever reason, it right. seems like, you know you know, touting her as a producer for whatever reason didn't seem like something that people needed to do in the bio. But, man, like, it's when you find that out, you realize, Hey, this is an artist to be reckoned with.
0: Yeah. And, and how unfortunate I think for Debbie, because, you know, I have to confess that historically I had kind of put Debbie Gibson in the same kind of category as say new kids on the block, right? Where, you know, new kids on the block were enormously popular. You know, the, they were talented guys, but they were, they were put together, prepackaged. packaged yeah. I mean, it was a casting call, you know, and it, it was the adults, who were, who were pulling the strings up to a certain point, you know, for, for them. And, uh, I think I just had kind of assumed that like, Oh yeah, Debbie Gibson, another one of those, you know, kind of pop artists or whatever. When I realized, um, that she was the singular driving force, mad respect, dude. Like I, you know, I, my musical proclivities aren't necessarily towards like mainstream eighties pop. Uh, but I remember those songs. I remember having, you know, her first couple albums on cassette. And uh, when I figured out like how central she was to that man, yeah. like Debbie Gibson deserves mad respect that she maybe hasn't gotten because people just don't realize that that she she was the force, man.
1: Well, hopefully this interview can be part of kind of a retelling of that story. And uh, anyone who listens can kind of come away with a new appreciation for her and her work.
0: Yeah, and, you know, maybe uh, if you haven't paid as much of attention as you should have to Debbie Gibson as a songwriter, I hope that this uh, interview just hits you out of the blue. Well done. Part three. Once again, our guest on this episode of Songcraft is pop legend, Debbie Gibson, who solo wrote her five top five Billboard singles in the late 1980s while still a teenager, earned the ASCAP Songwriter of the Year Award, sold over 16 million albums worldwide, and was named one of Billboard magazine's top 60 female artists of all time. She joins us to chat about her influences, her development as a songwriter, and her latest critically acclaimed album, The Body Remembers. Debbie, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. It's great to speak to you. Um, you have a new album called The Body Remembers. It's your first U.S. studio album release uh, in, I think, well, 20 years in terms of original songs going all the way back to NYOB. This has been yes. a, a drought in terms of uh, new material, you know, original uh, album release. Um, and, you know, I'm curious, we're, we're coming out of this covid period or i hope we're coming out slowly yes emerging um but i'm curious if having to go in lockdown having this uh kind of suddenly we're all having extra time (laughs) given to us whether we wanted it or not did that have any influence on you in terms of okay it's now's the time to stop down and really concentrate on writing and and work on another record
2: So interestingly enough, um, I had always planned to take last year to, for me, for myself to really be, you know, what pretty much when the pandemic started was going to be my downtime, downtime meaning putter around the house and let songs drop in mode. Um, and it's funny you use the word drought. It actually, it's not ever been a songwriting drought for me. Like I've had so... Like, the songwriting's a through-line of my life, and uh, there have been many profound songwriting chapters in the last 20 years, but it, for to have the moment where you want to release stuff, where you want to fully produce stuff, see stuff, see songs to fruition, which, when you're detail-oriented like I am in terms of production, you know, you, you're investing... You're sending your child to college. <laughs> you're like, I am grooming you for the world. And it's an investment with each and every song. And I felt like the more time went, went on and the more I was like, shoot, when I come out with, with whatever I come out with next, I better have something to say. And I better be in a moment in my life where I'm ready to fully immerse myself in the recording of these songs in the promotion of these songs I mean, I'm I'm, I'm working on um, an outline for a book now because kind of out of this chapter is coming all of that because it just feels like the culmination of a lot of life lived. I think people were very used to me being kind of like the little the little pop princess in a glass tower or bubble when I was younger and, you know age 30 to 50 saw a lot of challenging times in my life. And with the challenges came me having to figure out how to get out of those situations. And And music was always the thing that helped me turn things around in my life. So this album is very much, it very much speaks to that. And I think it, it happened a time with the pandemic which found a lot of people in a challenging moment in life. And so universally, like I just love when things align. And I think as artists and as songwriters, it's kind of our job to be in tune with that, you know, to like keep our Mm. own life clear and our channels clear so that we can tune into what's authentic for us as artists and as writers, but also what's going to resonate with people. And when that all comes together at the same time, it's magical. And this was just the first time I felt that in two decades really like i yeah i was in mm-hmm. my songwriting bubble like 10 years ago but it wasn't anything that felt i don't know it wasn't resonating deeply enough for me and i didn't think it was going to resonate deeply enough for the audience huh yeah yeah
1: you know, uh, the, the single, uh, first single from the new record is Girls' Night Out, and I can hardly think of a more kind of appropriate song for the world now <laughs> to be like, hey, let's, let's get back out there, right? Right. Um, and you mentioned authenticity, One one of my favorite lyrics in the song is, I'm going to take this feeling back home to my man, because it's it's a different idea than all those club songs that are about, you know, hungrily scouring the club for companionship.
3: I'm going to take the ste-
2: love, love, love so much that you picked that line out of the song because I've always said like, yeah, it's not a man hater song. It's not an exclusion song. I'm inclusive, right. <laughs> but I do think, yes, women, girls need to bond with their tribe, so to speak. But yeah, yeah. I think that when women get invigorated and, in, and they're in the context of a relationship, yes, it's like... They can take that feeling back into their lives, as opposed to just being in the roles that they're meant to play of wife, of mother. Mm. Um, They have to connect with that role of friend and sister. And so, I'm so excited. You have no idea how happy that made me that you pulled that (laughs) line (laughs) out. But I do think it's true. I think like there is like a reset and and a and a reinvigoration that happens when women go and remind themselves that they're really grown up girls, you know, like Hmm. I saw that a lot on the mixtape tour and I actually wrote the song when I knew I was going on the mixtape tour a couple of years back, because I did see the excitement virtually of all these women. They became those 15 year old girls buying their first new kids on the block ticket. They became those. And it's like, you know what? Yes. We're now moms. We're doctors. We're teachers. We're all these things, but we also just need to be that screaming girl at a concert sometimes, too. And I just loved yeah. that feeling. And, um, you know, that was really the the impetus for the song.
0: You know, I have to confess that it wasn't until recently um, that I knew that all of those hit songs that you came out with in the 80s were written by you completely solo. Um, and you have this... You know, I think as a culture, we have this idea of like the teen pop star must be some kind of packaged thing or there must be, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling the strings. But I, w- I want to dig in a little bit to this concept of, you know, a a teenage kid growing up in Long Island, writing songs by yourself, producing songs in your bedroom. You know, you were young. I mean, where did this come from do you do you have a sense of of where that that spark originated in terms of your own creativity and and desire to to write and and, and produce music
2: i mean you know i was listening to billy joel as a long island girl <laughs> but you don't hear billy joel influences i don't think especially in those early hits you know and i was i was also listening to listening to Madonna and Wham! And I was hugely aware that George Michael was a songwriter. Um, You know, so I was very much influenced by pop music. And I loved hooks. Um, And and when it came to Billy, I mean, I just, I loved, I was a, I was a piano girl. I started playing by ear when I was four. So I just instantly gravitated to pianists from Liberace, whose piano I now own, (laughs) to Billy Joel (laughs) and Elton John. And I was always a, a super melodic writer. And even... Even when I was like 5 years old, I was writing this song, "Make sure you know your classroom, make sure you know your seat. I'll help you find your teacher, I hope she looks so sweet." Da, 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 da. But it, it was very <laughs> simple but very melodic like the melodies always went somewhere and I I just always that, those that's what I always tuned into and aspired to do. But yes, it was kind of almost confusing especially to the record company executives that I came with my own, I I I liken it to having like Kazoo on my shoulder from the Flintstones. It was like, the, you know, or your analogy of the Wizard of Oz. It was like, I am a, I am a self-contained, like I'm a little girl pop singer, but I don't, but I didn't have like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be on the Lilith Fair tour. Like I was, you know, um. I was, like create, like you said, kind of crafting what normally an older male writer or an older male record executives would craft. So it confused huh. people, and it was kind of challenging for my mom in particular, who was managing me at the time and did did for twenty five years and did an amazing job. I mean, she was like they first of all, Atlantic heard a hundred songs, no joke, a hundred before they signed me just to work on Only In My Dreams. all shall remain nameless but the guy running the (laughs) publishing company said you do realize though like people don't single-handedly write their pop hits anymore so you're gonna have to be in a room with maybe eight people and maybe some of them are real writers and maybe some of them aren't and it's funny because I there's a scene in in my first Hallmark movie and I'm playing a pop singer who goes undercover as a music teacher and I do a whole scene based on that conversation. I go, yeah, but, you know, the girl walking through the studio with the coffee who goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, she's a writer on the song now. We're, You know, and Adley, because, <laughs> right? The beats are part of a song. Production's part of a song now. It's it's all very different. It's all very different. Right. And, and one of the only places I think you find it anymore maybe is in country.
0: Right. Even that's changing where you're now seeing, you used to see two, maybe three writers. Now you're seeing four or five. Mm-hmm. The artist is always a writer, whether they you know whether they actually write or not so you know even i think the the country world is is shifting in that regard too it's very much a different
2: it's true landscape. but but, insti- but but interestingly like ba- so back when i was that teenager i did feel like i had something to prove like i wanted people to know that i was writing the songs top to bottom and that i was self-contained but what what's really fun about being me now is that i i'm the opposite i do actually get the fact that the energy of that girl bringing that coffee into the room and singing that line might've contributed something to the song. Hmm, And so this album finds me in a lot more collaborative spirit because I, I I don't feel like I have to, you know, say me, 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 mine, mine, mine anymore. It's like, no, you know what? It is a group effort and sonically what people like, there's such blurred lines between arrangement, production, programming, writing, it all is the song at the end. You know, and yes, the song right. still is the melody and the lyrics and the chords that you're going to sit and play at the piano. But people are so sonically oriented now and it is the whole feeling and energy of a record too to me. So, right. it's fun. It's fun to to now like come full circle and be like, "Yes, I know I could sit at the piano and write a song top to bottom, but I love the energy of all the collaborators on this album contributing.
0: I read online, and I don't know if this is uh, true. I, I have discovered that some of the things I read on the internet turn out not to be true. No, <laughs> <Come on>. no. <laughs> but uh, I read that you have an uncredited appearance in uh, in the film Ghostbusters from 1984. <laughs> That's is that true? True.
2: So I was the little kid that wanted to do anything showbiz related. It was like showbiz adjacent. I was there. I wanted to do. It, they called it extra work back then day player work now, um, or background acting work now. And I wanted to be everywhere that anything to do with showbiz was. So I had, you know, the kitty agents and managers and I would do TV commercials and all of that. And I was an extra in book of Daniel in ghostbusters in, Oh my God. I, I can't even remember. Like there were like 10 movies. Um, but ghostbusters was so much fun Um, It was the tavern on the green scene. uh, And it was um, wait Harold Ramis. I think it was him being chased, Mm -hmm. but he was like playing Twister. And then he was chased by the big ghost out of the party. And (laughs) yes, I was the birthday girl and the guy playing the server in the restaurant stood in front of me for like 90 percent of what would have been my screen time. And when he like leaned out of the way for a moment, I was like, there I am. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We all my family and I all went to my sisters, my parents. We all went to the Gables 99 cent movie theater in Merrick, Long Island. And we all screamed when we saw me on screen for two seconds. (laughs)
1: Awesome. (laughs) You know, with with the amazing success and energy of of your first album, uh, I think often, you know, those of us that kind of pour over the historical annals of music, the, the what would normally happen is then the second album would come out and there's just not much on it and, and things, you know, kind of, you know, stop at that point. But that was not even close to the case with you. Um, you know, Electric Youth comes out with Lost in Your Eyes, uh, the title track. Uh, I, I, here's what I'm wondering... When you come in with 100 songs for Atlantic to look at, that you've written yourself in your bedroom, all this, that's that's your life up to that point in song. And that's mm-hmm. someone that doesn't have the pressure of of meeting success and meeting expectations. That That's a d- really different way to write than, oh my gosh, I just had this hugely successful album. Now I'm going back to the writer room. How in the world did you do it again?
2: Right, well, yeah, I mean, pretty much. So there was like a bit of an overlap, like when the out of and it's by the way it's happening again and i i i sometimes accidentally call the album that i'm going to release in another year or two i accidentally call it my second album because it hmm. feels like the first chapter all over again and yeah. so like the right when i right when i delivered that first album i was already on to lost in your eyes and electric youth and who loves you baby and so um I even I even performed Lost in Your Eyes and We Could Be Together live uh before they ever came out just to kind of try them out in front of the audiences. Huh. And so it felt almost like one continual chapter. There were so there were some songs that were a little bit like again overlapped with the first album. I think the 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 easy answer to that, the simple answer to that is that I was a kid and I didn't really understand what that pressure was, like that was not the pressure-filled part of my career or life. Staying up Hmm. late was, trying to finish high school was, trying to be a normal kid but run my career. That was all complicated. But writing songs was never complicated to me. I was just joyful about it. And I felt like, I don't know. I think what I felt then and what I feel now is, if you're always evolving, you're always going. There's always going to be a song out that comes out mm-hmm. of your life if you're living your life.
0: Yeah. Well, I've heard you say that that Electric Youth is a song um, that just kind of fell out of the sky, fully formed. And I think songwriters can, um, you know, identify with that idea that sometimes they just arrive. It's like they almost just, you know, fall into your brain from somewhere else. Yep. It's- that for you writing has never been complicated um but i wonder if if that just sort of arriving fully formed tends to be the norm for you or does uncomplicated still sometimes involve just kind of the coming back to it tweaking it working on it you know and, and really shaping it and crafting or d- does does it tend to come about differently you know different songs come in different ways
2: i love that question yeah they they come in different ways and i think they so like this chapter finds me paying a lot more attention to lyrics i think that i think that because i did have limited life experience uh and there was like a beauty to the simplicity of my lyrics you know i jokingly say like you know it's like shake your love i just can't shake your love
3: shake
2: Talk about simple. <laughs> um, but there was a beauty to the simplicity of it, and there was not going to be much tweaking that really could have been done on any of that material, and, and a song like Lost in Your Eyes. I mean, even now, I think if I tried to go back and, like, oh, could I say that any better? I, I can't. Like, that song was just meant to be that simple. I get lost. But yeah, like in the in the more recent uh, songs, you know, the new album and all of that, there was quite often a hook that dropped in, and maybe I forced a verse that same day, and I was like, mm, this ain't the final verse. And I remember Dee Snider talking about that with, "We're not gonna take it," which you know, what a great song. I, I sat at the piano a few years ago and did it as an acoustic because, like, I think that's the sign of a great song when you can sit and break a song down and you go, "Wow." This is a really like there is a reason why that song is licensed every two seconds to this day, 30 years later, 35 years later. Yeah. And I remember him saying, because he's a friend of mine, that similarly he had that hook and the verses were just never quite right. And I think if you just kind of trust that they're going to drop in, even my title track, The Body Remembers, the I, I f- recently found the notebook where I started it and there were completely different verses and they were just like a little too poetic and run on sentency and just they just weren't meant to be the final tighter verses that they are now
3: Last night, I was driving in my car And song it came on I tight, Like the memory how to feel but you took me oh you took me right back baby we were young and a little crazy right here then something started to crack in my pretty little funny remembers but the heart tries to forget so young I
2: that's that has happened quite a bit and even like the song legendary which is on the new album That's i went round and round with uh, why be ordinary when you can be legendary if you can be yes you are go be you you know when be all you be i mean like i i played with all of that a lot until it felt right to me and there's no right or wrong it's just what I said until it felt right to me you know until I was like yeah I can sing it this way till I'm 80 and beyond because I've now had the privilege of knowing like you're going to be performing these songs forever I even tweaked a couple of lyrics on the new album after the CD version was delivered because we were like delivering the final mastered CD and then digital and then vinyl and so there's like 2000 cds out there with a few lyrics that i woke up one night and went oh my god i can't say it that way i have to say it this way Hmm. so i'm i pay a lot more attention to the tweaking now than i did but i do think like the basic the basic hooks tend to drop in in like Hmm. pretty fully formed melodically at least
0: well and you mentioned legendary which I understand is a, a song about Kobe Bryant and um, I noticed that you play piano uh, on that track. I think you play piano on on uh, two or three of the the songs on the record um, yeah and you know as you say you grew up as a piano kid you're you're a good uh, piano player but as somebody who is you know both a writer and a producer and a performer, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, when you look at a song and go, hey, I want somebody else to play on this versus I'm going to play on this. And I guess what I'm really asking is for somebody like yourself, you're almost playing the role of director. And there's sometimes there's roles that you could certainly do very well, but you might decide to hand that off to to somebody else. And I'd love to hear a bit about just your creative instincts of how you kind of sense you know when to, for instance, co-write versus write solo, or when to bring in a a different instrumentalist to play something that you could play. Um, is that just kind of a, an instinct? Sort I of thing love this
2: question so much. You're managing to ask me questions I have not been asked in in 35 years, which is hard to do, and questions I really love, um, because <laughs> yeah, I really believe in being objective, and you just hit it on the head. It's like it's I the phrase that comes to mind is serve the song. The song that that is what I want to do. Again, there's no ego involved in saying I played this, you know, Um, there are songs that um, like there's a song called Too Fancy on the Think With Your Heart album I released um, uh, on SBK EMI when I was like 23 years old or 24 years old. And a guy named Steve Rosen out of Nashville, I, I had him play on it because it was a little more of a jazz kind of a thing, and I'm not a jazz player. That's not where my chops are. But for Legendary, I was like, nobody's going to channel the emotion of it better than me. Um, and it doesn't mean it didn't take work stylistically. Fred Corey co-produced that. He's the pe- Most people know him as the drummer from Cinderella, but he's a composer, arranger. He does scoring for TV and film. And it was during the pandemic and I FaceTimed with him. And I said, I, can you essentially produce my piano part? Because I didn't want to be kazoo slash the wizard <laughs> behind the curtain <laughs> and playing at the same time. So even little things were... Da-da, versus... Da-da, Whatever the things were, he was like take it up the octave, um, do it staccato there, do it legato here. Um, you know, you're giving me mezzo forte, give it, let, let it rip here. Um, ooh, that octave thing you were just doing. So he would point out, you know, um, things that when I was in the moment, I was not hearing. Why be ordinary
3: When you can be Legendary Helped you see all oh, that you be, so now be legendary. Your words are your weapon, from the east to the west end, from London to Melbourne,
2: you're a legend. But yeah, so. I am all about serving the song is, is the answer to that. Sean Thomas, who is now 20, he worked on this album with me from age 17 to 20. He is a total musical prodigy. He too contributed a lot. If we were doing a programmed, you know, a recorded piano, like a, you know, a MIDI piano, um, he would like, you know, because he was collaborating on the track so much that if he had to tweak something, uh, it was a, Total collaborative piano part. And that was so interesting. He completely did the new piano part on the new Lost in Your Eyes. So when I went to perform that in Vegas with Joey McIntyre, after sitting at the piano for 32, 33, however many years it's been, 34 years, playing it a certain way, I had to relearn my own song. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow.
2: I had to actually, I was like, oh my god, someone needs to transcribe this. I need to look at it on sheet music. And learn it like the pianist now, which was fascinating and cool, hmm. you know, because his yeah. voicings made it modern. And it's such a fine line between something sounded sounding dated. Like, there has to be a reason to remake something. And he had a really hard task because it's like keeping... I was, like, petrified that when my diehard fans didn't hear plink, 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 plink on the piano you know, they were going to throw tomatoes, but they didn't. They embraced <laughs> it. They embraced it because it sound, it kept the integrity of the original, but it felt like something new in a very classy, not contrived kind of way.
3: I get lost in your eyes And I feel my spirits rise inside
2: that that like weird elusive like how do you get something to sound current I don't know I'm not 20 so I hired the 20 year old who I knew could do it you know I right. collaborated with him a lot
1: right you know uh tracing the the line uh, of your career is like is really fascinating for me I mean there, there are these some of the things I see, just these wild high points. You know, the, the fact that you and Bruce Springsteen were both named ASCAP Songwriter of the Year in 1989 is is mind blowing to me. I can't imagine how you must have processed that at the time. I'm still and, processing. And then, <laughs> 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 you know, and and then to go and making your 1991 album "Anything Is Possible." You know, you you move from just writing some of these songs by yourself, and now you're writing with Motown legend Lamont Dozier. You know, you guys are colleagues and collaborators, and and to see all that. And then it wasn't long after that that you find yourself on Broadway in Les Misérables mm-hmm. and, and starring in Greece, and and the thing that I find really fascinating about it is that, you know, that's a moment when radio was changing. Yes, um, and and sometimes it doesn't matter. It you could still be writing amazing songs and great songs and moving your artistry forward in in a in the right way, but if radio is moving, there's not much you can really do about it. Um, the timing of that Broadway move just seems almost like it dropped out of of heaven because you were able to kind of i won't even call it a reinvention, just an addition to the things that you offered the creative world. How much strategy <laughs> goes <laughs> I, into I that? that and, and how yeah. much do you look at it as as serendipity
2: It's really intuition, I think like I was just tapped into like i I can remember the moment like i remember. so first of all. Everything I've done, and and everything I've done that's been super successful, was super authentic, and and didn't come from nowhere. In that, like I was auditioning for Les Misérables when I was fifteen, and didn't I was called back three times, didn't get the role, went on to have the first five years of my recording career. And while I was doing the Anything Is Possible tour, I put the song "The Big Eponine Number" on my own, pretending he's mm-hmm. beside me in my live show. And you know, like diehard pop executives, like record executives, were like, "What is? What's that?" And I was like, "Trust me, every 16-year-old girl wants to be Eponine in Les Mis." Mm. It was the identifiable, it was like before Broadway was super pop, but that role was like, you know, way before Hamilton, there was Eponine, like in mm. some weird way, way before there was Alphaba and all those big, belty, gritty girl roles. And so it really connected to what I was doing. And my mom and I were like, hey, let's invite the Les Mis creative team and producers back to see me now, because I've grown, I had grown vocally. And they got it. and I. But I remember, like, listen, my third tour, we had to downsize from what we thought we were going to do because, like you said, Seattle Grunge was coming in. Everything mm. pop was going out. There was a huge backlash against electric youth. People were like, take that video off the air. I mean, it's just so crazy. Like, yeah, you know, you think if you don't have anything nice to say, but people... People said it all. And um, yeah, just, you know, it's just, that, it, that just happens. It just happens. The energy in the world shifts and, and it happens. But I remember always being very matter of fact about like, oh, I'm not welcome there. Well, let me go here. So <laughs> I, you know, it, I remember being like, you know what? This really is the time, if they'll have me, to do Broadway. It's been my dream since I'm fi- since I was five years old. I am not welcome with open arms on radio anymore. And I always just felt like if you're versatile, you can find a way to be top of your game in some genre or another. Always. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of been the key to to my life. You know, (laughs) I I tend to, I'm a good pivoter. I'm a good pivoter. And that's, so Mm -hmm. more than a strategist like Madonna, like Madonna can strategize you know, hitting a pop bullseye in every decade and I, I always looked at that and thought, oh, my God, that looks exhausting. I don't know how to do that. But I do know how to be in the moment and feel my way through and to what's good and right for me next and next and next.
0: No. Hmm. Well, you talked about, you know, kind of enjoying collaborating um, at this point. and And the Body Remembers album has, I'd say, probably more than half the songs are are written solo by you. But then you've also got um, songs like One Step Closer that are collaborations with Tracy Young mm-hmm. or um, Runway, which is a collaboration with Sean Thomas. Mm-hmm. You've got this sort of collaborative. It's It's a balance of collaborations and solo written songs in light of that, you know, Paul mentioned that the Anything Is Possible album included, I think there were four songs on that record that were co-written with Lamont Dozier, including the the title track. Um, and then, you know, on your Body, Mind, Soul record, you you see um, kind of Carl Sturkin and Evan Rogers kind of playing yeah. the, the same role, the collaborative thing. Um, I think it's pretty clear from, you know, from hearing from you that now, on your most recent record, you're collaborating because... You want to. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious if there was any pressure after having written these two amazing albums where you're the only writer. Did you feel a sense of record executives or management or whoever kind of pushing you to say, hey, you need to start writing with with some of these other people or was that something that came from you where you thought well now I've got a little clout I'd like to seek out some of these people
2: yeah so the Lamont collaboration i um, I we were introduced somehow I feel like it was at an award show or something and that happened super organically um that was like we should work together and I always had that listen Motown was always playing on the record player in my house my parents were big fans you know, they started with me on the fifties do up from bandstand and then the sixties Motown. So that for me was just a thrill. Like that probably wasn't the hippest move for me, but it was like super cool to me and to real musicians, you know, that people were like, you're collaborating with who I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like going for the of the moment, um, hot writer, producer. And that was never my mentality. And then, The Body, Mind, Soul album, I turned in an album that was quite different than the album it became. And it was a little more um, in the Whitney pop, you know, mode. And um, Phil Ramone worked on three songs. I think one of his songs made it on there, but we worked on three together, um, you know, with him as producer. And there were songs that were even a little more in the Wilson Phillips, like just super melodic. Again, like, you know suburban white girl pop melodic stuff and i remember the male atlantic executives um who by the way i never want to sound like i'm bad mouthing because they did what they did for me which was incredible but i do think it's human nature to be like okay she did all this and now how can we infuse our creativity into this right instead of just
0: how can how can we screw up the formula (laughs) (laughs)
2: but yeah so they they didn't hear what they wanted to they had a perception of and it's also very weirdly parental right it's like here's where I see you going to college and where I see you go what I see you wearing to the prom like that's how that's Mm. what I felt like because that was the age I was I was like turning 20 and you know in 21 and so everyone was kind of like wait, you're still wearing high tops to host award shows? When are you putting the heels on? When are you putting the little black dress on? And musically, they wanted the equivalent of that because it's easier to sell. Like, we all know it's easier to sell a little girl in a little dress and heels. And and so I remember at one point it was like, you should work with Prince and you should work with Babyface. Now, of course, I idolized Prince and Babyface. But I yeah. felt like who is going to buy, as in believe, that collab, like, that's not the, that's not my musical roots, that's not where I come from, and so the closest we got to that was Sturkin and Rogers. like, that was like, okay, well, they did Soldier of Love, you know, they had done Soldier of Love for Donny Osmond, so I, and, and they had Rhythm Syndicate, and so I was like, okay, so that is, if I was gonna go into any kind of (laughs) r and b world, I guess I can, you know, and that's where like the little girl people pleaser, like, I can make that I can make that work kind of thing came in because it f- it felt like well, either that or they're not, you can release this other album. And they're not gonna promote it. They're gonna shelve it. So I was like, yeah. all right, well, maybe I'll see this as stretching my creativity, okay? And I loved working with Carl and Evans so much, and I think we came up with really great songs that had absolutely nothing to do with who i was at that age
3: a million people talk but I don't hear a word they say. I want to. I'm losing myself over. You.
2: you know, so suddenly I was stepping into the role of Debbie Gibson, collaborating with Carl and Evan, and making it work as if it was a theater role. But pop audiences don't want their artists in a theater role. They want you to be yourself. They want they want the authenticity. And so I learned a lot back then. And I remember, I mean, I used to walk out of those meetings with my mom and sob because I was like, this, the the first three, four years went so well yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I got to be me and it worked. Why is everybody, like you said, why is everyone trying to get their hands in this now? And I just, I, I had a lot of integrity for a little kid and I walked away from I think it was five more albums at $2 million an album in advance money. So at 21 years old, I walked away from $10 million because I could not take the creative, like, everything got convoluted. And I'm like, mm-hmm. creativity has to be pure. And the thing about this album, bringing it full circle with the collaborations, yes, they're all by choice. They're all authentic. All the melody and lyrics on the album are mine, except for Love Don't Care, which... Um, um, Lars and I wrote, and he, uh, he and I had gone out to, to lunch. He had come into town to write. And, um, we met doing the new kids, um, eighties baby track. And so again, that was, that came authentically out of a conversation at lunch. And like, that's the way it has to happen. Cause I like just being like put into a room with people, be like, hey, this is my life. What's your life? Let's write about it. Oh, they're, they're my dogs. It's not a pet sitter day. <laughs> what is it, guys? What do right you hear? Come here, bubs. Come here. <laughs> I have three boy hot dogs. It's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so the collaborations were all really organic, and everything ended up back through my filter, not through any record executive's filter. I am I am the record executive along with my manager, Heather. And so... Um, you know, so it's very different now. It's it's not about creative control. It's it's about um, yeah. I mean, a- anyone who's going to join the party that's going to elevate the song, come join the party. <laughs> that's it. Mm, yeah. yeah <laughs> because yeah. it's no. Ne- because I'm never going to allow it to not be me at the end. Like I don't think anyone listens to the album thinking like, ooh, that does that sounds like somebody. No, it all feels like who I am. It's just that all the collaborators allowed me to find new parts of myself and stretch. And yeah, there's such a freedom now in that kind of collaborating. Mm.
1: It, it seems like one of your artistic superpowers is an ability to kind of understand where your audience is um, and to kind of block out any other influences. Because I'm thinking about, you know, you come in at, you know, as a teenager and everybody wants to tell you, this is what the adults need from you. And then as you enter your, you know, say, 30s and 40s, people will start to say, well, this is what the kids need from you. And th- that's, that's got to be sort of jarring as an artist. But you've always been able to sort of laser in on, no, I think I know. You know, you're even talking about, about your approach to Broadway and Broadway music and understanding that, that sort of your audience is going to connect with these things. I mean, I even think right now for you to come out and do a, a duet, you know, with Joe McIntyre or the collaborations that you've done with Jordan Knight, I mean, that's so spot on with you You know you're blowing minds the moment that you do that,
2: um, and that I have and, to give over to Joe because it was totally his idea to do that song as a duet. But yeah, no, but really? I did know I did know that that was a magical idea for sure. and And what's funny about what you're saying, and I thank you for that because it's a lovely compliment, I also knew when I didn't know what my audience wanted, which hmm. case in point, why I didn't really release anything, let's say ten years ago. I was like sucked yeah. into a vortex of health challenges and, you know, just kind of reconfiguring my life in all of my relationships, per- personal, professional. And so I wasn't as connected in the world. I just wasn't. I yeah. was in my own little bubble dealing with what I had to deal with. But I do think social media has really allowed for those who want to connect to connect. So, you know, like yeah. I jokingly say to my, Audience, <laughs> I stalk you on Instagram. I know, I know their, I know their dogs' names. I know their careers. <laughs> I know if they're, you know, I know who they are, and I want to know who they are. That is who I'm singing to, and I do feel like one of one of my longtime supporters said the other day, like, "Look at you being all normal and stuff." Because I posted, I do kitchen karaoke where I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. I was like no makeup and with a wooden spoon and cleaning. I'm not a very good domestic person but I try uh, but she's like look at you being on the I'm like but I am I mean I see myself as just someone who does what I do you're someone who does what you do we all do what we do we all have our gifts we all have our magic and I do look for the places of connection to people and I love people like I'm one of those people whose day starts in a much better mood if I go to my local coffee place, even if I'm only having three sips of that coffee I buy. But I, I like mm. to connect with people. I think people have needed to take from the nostalgic, pure, upbeat, more innocent times in their lives. We we've I think we've all needed to take from that music and, and for, again, like Girls' Night Out, from that connection and the Joey McIntyre duet, from, like, reconnect. But at the same time, I do think, my generation is vital and vibrant and sexy and cool and modern and doesn't want to necessarily live in the past. Right. And that's what the title and what that title track is really about. It's like, you can let something from your past transport you in a really great way that helps you be who you are now and move forward.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that, uh, the, the song My Generation by The Who is a really interesting song in that it translates yet again the same way it did to their audience You know, when they were 16 years old, you know, people trying to put us down, mm-hmm. talking about my generation. And now I see those same listeners, and they're like 75 at this point, and they're like, hey, nobody's giving my generation any credit. And I'm like, that is an incredible song because that same generation has the same chip on their shoulder for different reasons.
2: A thousand percent. <laughs> Right. And listen, and I'm not because I always, you know, I'm careful of what I say. I'm not comparing myself to the who or my songwriting to the who. But I will say in that same sense, my song Electric Youth, I sing it for people now in a way that's about what I call remaining eternally electric. So again, connecting to that idea of you are ageless and you are timeless. And yes, that can be, I joke and say I was the youngest person to do a bunch of stuff and now I might be the oldest person to do a bunch of stuff heading into this new chapter. (laughs) Um, But it's like the same message about um, ageism. That song was about ageism. And I talk about that a lot when I'm performing live. And now I've gotten Joey McIntyre talking about it too. Because he's like, wow, you've made me realize like, i don't care how old people are, I don't really notice like i'm like i don't yeah. either you know i I love Marie Osmond. I love Donnie and Marie. And I used to see them all the time living here in Vegas. You can't pin an age on them like you can't yeah. Um, yeah. they're not getting stuck in their own perception, so why are other people? you know it makes me nuts right. um but that yeah. was a great that's a great example of the who
0: yeah, and piggybacking off of that, I mean you know w- when you have a band like the Rolling Stones, for instance, like there's no way the Rolling Stones are going to come and play a concert and you're not going to hear Satisfaction. Right. I mean, they right. they have to play Satisfaction. They've played it every night for 55 years. <laughs> That's what the audience <laughs> yeah. wants to hear, yeah. you know, and I don't know how old Mick was or Keith when they wrote that song, but they were probably, you know, in their young 20s. And, you know, you have had a a long and varied career but i think the way that people got to know you at first was from these huge hits like only in my dreams and and shake your love and out of the blue um, you know you're talking about a 15 16 year old girl and now you know you're a grown woman you're in a different uh, headspace you've had different life experiences and i'm curious like obviously if you're going to play shows the fans you know they want to hear those songs mm-hmm. how do you connect with those songs that were written in a very different life stage? What kind of resonance do those songs have for you, you know, years later coming from a very different perspective?
2: Another great question. So first of all, I just was joking with my manager earlier today that if I do an Instagram post that involves social media post that involve Shake Your Love, the numbers skyrocket. People, for some reason, that song makes people feel good. So first of all, I always, I always feel good doing songs that I know make people feel good. The Vegas shows I did recently with Joey McIntyre, I stripped Shake Your Love Down. I did it as an acoustic, which was really fun. Because trying to do a song the way you did it as a teenager is challenging and every now and again I make the conscious decision to do that with a song or two because there are those purists that are like I wanted to hear the exact production and
3: sounds and yeah. everything <laughs> right. but
2: it's this diaphragmatic way of singing that's like you know shake your love and that comes from a very youthful uh, over adrenalized kind of (laughs) energy right and so even just shake your love i just can't shake it up and letting it drop in in a different way and doing it acoustically was really fun for me so i do try Mm -hmm. to change it up and songs like that you it's not like i'm going to interpret the lyrics so differently now so i have to do it a little tongue-in-cheek a little wink wink with like you said use the word perspective with the perspective of here we are now, we're looking back on this song and we're just enjoying it. But now a song like Foolish Beat that was a simplistic uh, unrequited love song, breakup song, it, I can fill it in now. It lends itself to me filling it in with my adult experience and emotion, which is really fun for me. Because yeah. every yeah. year, every five years, every decade, it, it you know, it could be different night to night. Um, it it's a different song for me and it's it can it can feel very much like who i am now
0: Foolish Beat hit number one, that made you the youngest female artist to write, produce, and perform a Billboard number one single, which is just insane. And I have this weird visceral memory. I'm I'm like five years younger than you. And so I remember when that album came out, I had it on cassette tape. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in the back of my mom's Volvo... No seatbelt, of course, because it was the '80s, <laughs> and <You> we <were> smoking. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I'm in the back of my mom's Volvo, and I'm listening to that album on cassette. But I remember for the first time in my life, going, "Oh, I can pick apart what what the bass is." Like I'd always just heard music as like one thing. Like it, music was to me just a unified sound. Right. And that was that album was the first time that I was like, "Oh, that's the bass part." And then here's what the keyboard melody is doing. And that's the rhythm part. And I remember just having this like it was kind of the first time I heard music in parts. I love um, that. Now, do you think I'm going to turn whole. the
2: question on you? Do you think it's because because like I feel like, you know, it, it's a super simple production. Like, do you think it's the simplicity of it that allowed you to hear that or just something in where you were at that point in your life that allowed you to hear it that way?
0: You know that's interesting. I I don't know. It might be the fact that it was a very straight ahead production and it was like something that that my mind could could comprehend or or latch onto at that stage. Right. Well, it um, had
2: space. It had space. Yeah. And I've always loved space. Yeah. Even in the like the new album where there's a lot of like I don't want to say overproduction, hopefully it's not overproduction, but like int- we'll call it intricate production. But I usually try to try to bring it in and out of spaciousness, you know, like verses yeah. and breakdowns. And one of the reasons I think why I was able to produce that song and wanted to, and my mom banged her fists on the table at Atlantic Records to say my daughter needs to produce this song is for that reason, it was simple. And again, to mm. quote you from a few minutes ago, it's like, we didn't want anyone messing it up because it was already <laughs> there. It was it was yeah. just there for the taking. It was, you know, si- it w- simplicity sometimes is so underrated, you know? So I love that. I love that you could hear the break- breaking down of the parts.
0: And I think that what's so fascinating to me about that is, um, and I'd love to hear kind of your experience, but when when I was a kid, my dad was in the music industry. So he had like a little four track Tascam tape recorder. And, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I was like, you know, sitting there doing my little home demos. And he got like an eight track cassette recorder. And that was a huge deal because then I could, uh, you know, start messing around with trying to add more instruments and stuff. And Paul and I were friends even back in those days. And he can attest to how bad my experiments were, but (laughs) it did teach me a lot about how music is put together because you're a kid just figuring stuff out on a multi-track. And we had talked earlier about when you were a kid in your bedroom, kind of experimenting with this stuff. Um, I don't know what kind of recording, if you yeah, had like so a so I a, had a Tascam 4-track
2: also. Yeah. And I had a Lynn Rackmount sequencer, which I was so proficient on that like, I've never gotten as proficient on Pro Tools. Like I work with people who use Pro Tools, and I play, and I go, go back a bar, give me this, or do this. Except when I'm doing vocals, but that Lynn Rack mount sequencer and I were besties. Um, I had wow. I had a little, you know, reel to reel tape recorder. In fact, when I, I had DX7, uh, a Lynn drum machine, but when I did when I did radio IDs, like I would go, you know, c 100 has got the music I thought was only in my dreams, and I would splice tape. <laughs> I learned how to splice tape, which felt pretty badass, I have to say. Yeah. Because I would churn out like three, because back then you needed like three, it wasn't going to be like, I hard added the single, we're in. You needed 350 radio IDs (laughs) for all the stations, (laughs) and I did it for all my singles. It was insane. And then, wait, then I, see, I skipped the eight track. And I got the Akai 12-track, which still lives in my garage. I have to take it out and, like, turn it into a coffee table or something. Like, put glass around it. To- oh, yeah. Because it won't play. Lord knows. It looks like those little, like, VHS-type cassettes, like, tapes. And, yeah, yeah wasn't it fun bouncing on those things? And then, like, because you'd hear, like, and then, like, a faint arrangement <laughs> in the background. <laughs> right. I made a 36 36- track recording on a four track. Well great. It sounds like <laughs> crap. <laughs> and before I learned how to sequence, I would play like did it 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 did it and try to keep time and punch and right and yeah. And my other favorite thing from those days was um I would use Carvel ice cream sprinkles as my shaker. Oh, oh, oh nice. nice. Just like <laughs> super high EQ and <laughs> it was perfect. Right.
0: But don't you feel like in a way that because I know I appreciate having had that experience myself uh, when I was a teenager, but doing that multitrack kind of recording, you're almost teaching yourself how songs and records are put together because you're having to pay very close attention to every element. And I think that, you know, having that opportunity to kind of just be alone and be in isolation, um, you were essentially just going to songwriting and, and recording college by just Messing with it and figuring a it out,
2: thousand percent. And I was a great imitator too. I mean, look, like you know, I always credit Madonna for borderline, like it was only it. like those scoopy pop vocals. I was yeah. living in a pop world at the time, so that's who I was listening to on the radio, and I was instantly emulating it on the four track. And um, like I remember being so in love with OMD. If you leave. And I tried to emulate that song so many times. And I just remember like the pad sounds and, and layering the pads and those strings and that kind of like British washy thing that was going on at the time. Right. But you're right, immersing ourselves in it was the best way to learn, a thousand percent. And I wonder if it's the same with kids now in GarageBand and all that. Like there was something to like, Having that keyboard here and that drum machine there and that, you know, I used to line things up on the ironing board at one point, like drum machines and things. And, you know, the visual of that, it didn't all just live in a box. So I did love that about that time.
0: For sure. Well, uh the new record is called The Body Remembers. You have said that the the title refers to the idea that our bodies remember those Visceral moments tied to our favorite pop songs. We've had a lot of fun, Debbie, talking with you about some of those uh, classic pop songs from our youth and how that connects to what you're doing today. And it's just a really uh, fascinating arc. And it's been a lot of fun uh, picking your brain about your process. And uh, we want to encourage our listeners to check out the body remembers. And we thank you for spending some time with us.
2: Thank you both, Scott and Paul. This was so much fun. You guys really did ask some innovative questions I appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, loved it
1: thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft
0: via Apple Podcasts Spotify or your podcast app of choice if you like the show we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review word of mouth is important and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously and of course nothing beats a personal recommendation Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a
1: reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support
0: us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.